And aren't you glad that the Lord takes us just as we are? And he gives us the, sad, the opportunity to be forgiven. He gives us the privilege to find his grace. He mends us. He heals us. He helps us. Let's praise him one more time in prayer, then let's study. Father, we thank you that we can come before you this morning, a God who is so kind and so gracious to us. We who are sinners, we who don't deserve such grace, but we deserve damnation. We who are selfish, we who are self-centered, we who are given to our own ways and our own whims too often. Thank you for the grace of God. Thank you for the sacrifice of the Son. Thank you for his shed blood, his resurrection that gives us hope, that gives us help, that gives us forgiveness, that helps us to know that we can grow, we can change, and we can become more like the Lamb. Help us this day to take this truth from this passage, to be able to help ourselves to grow, to become more Christ-like. Challenge my heart, even as I've studied this, to share it with others and all of us walk away with encouragement, with challenge, with comfort, with conviction, so that we can become more like the Lamb. Heal our hearts. Help us with brokenness. Help us with desperate situations to be able to hope and to trust more in the Lord God Almighty, whom we pray to and whom we worship this day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're taking our Bibles and join with me. First Kings, please. First Kings, as we do a study, continue in the study on the life of Elijah. First Kings 17. First Kings 17. We're studying this morning in the crucible of God. We're going to be in the second half of chapter 17. And I was thinking about how so many of us have a lot of things in common. We have variety, obviously. One of the areas that we have in common, but with variety, is on the top of our heads. Some have hair, some don't. Some have a lot. Some have just a little. In fact, some start off this way. There are some kids who get a lot of hair from little on. There are individuals who have different types of hairdos that are cute, that are amazing how some of them, their hair, the abundance that they get from little on, that have a wide variety. There's one that's going viral right now on the Internet. It's a little seven-month-old over in Japan who is noted as having one of the largest heads of hair of any child around at this point. Then there are some who their hair may not be from their heredity, okay? There are some who they can have a full head of hair, and thank God it doesn't come from their genes that they're bald like their grandpops. Some of us here are trying to grow in other areas. Some of us are trying to grow in our faith, and we say it can't be done because I don't have the heredity. I don't have the circumstances. Well, let me share with you a story about a man who grew in his faith a whole lot. It's interesting that this man is also called a hairy man, okay, if we remember from two, three, or four weeks ago. But we're talking about Elijah who grew in his faith. And as we come to chapter 17, it's an interesting story of how this man grows in his faith even more. But he's an ordinary guy. He's like you. James talks about it and shares with us that he is a man subject to like passions. In other words, he was just like us, as several different translations point out. That James had battle, or that Elijah had battle, that Elijah had struggles, that he had temptations, that he came from a normal background. In fact, we don't even know the town where he came from, what it was like the region. We have just real, real little information about his background, but he was a man that grew in faith. 
And we thank the Lord that he grew in faith because he gives us hope. He gives us help that if somebody like him, a nobody can grow in faith, so can you and I. In chapter 17, we already saw some of the story. That he comes out of the clear blue and he meets the two most wicked rulers of all of Israel's history. Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Now she is from not, she is not from Israel. She's a Zidonian. She's a transplant because of treaties or whatever. But Ahab marries her and she brings with him, with her, all of her gods, her Baal worship, and it becomes the state religion. Under them, they force out all the prophets of God. They change everything when it comes to worship. Well, Ahab, uh, Elijah comes to them one day under the leading of the Lord and he confronts them. And he says, what you're doing is wicked, is wicked. And as a result, God's going to fulfill his word. He's going to hold back the rain from his people, the Jews, who do not follow him. They put other gods first. And so he pronounces the, the judgment that says, now for the next three and three and a half years, until I come back and meet you, you're not going to have any rain. Now that's a really desperate situation. You and I, we would say we've had enough rain all of a sudden. But in those days, they didn't have any rain. They were in an arid area. They needed the early and latter rains to grow anything. And now they're going to go for three and a half years without any rain. Any area would be devastated. Any area with the drought would be a problem. But especially a farming region where they were so dependent upon it because they were in that, that Middle East region. And so now, they, without rain, they're going to they're lose jobs. They're going to lose food. They're going to lose everything. Their economy is going to tank. They're going to have problems with other people invading, trying to find water for their region. So Elijah has pronounced a real curse on them by the leading of the Lord. This is a desperate situation. God directed Elijah right after he made that pronouncement to go into hiding because he said, you won't get rain until you see me again. Well, Ahab wants to see him again. Ahab wants to force him to stop this curse. But God takes him into an area called Cherith or Cherith, which means whittling. And there God whittles him down. God brings food to him via the ravens that he feeds them. And he feeds them only periodically, every, every uh, twice a day, but, but doesn't bring a whole lot of food ahead of time, and he's there. And as he's there, the drought gets worse. Ahab's looking for him, sends out a manhunt throughout the entire region of the Middle East. He says that he's had kings make vows that they aren't harboring, Eli, uh, harboring, harboring Elijah, that is. And so the drought is getting worse, and while he's sitting there in this drought... The, the brook that God has brought him to, the water, it dries up in answer to his own prayers. And Elijah is now is tempted like you and I are. He's got limited food. He's been isolated for three years, or for a year now, in that three-year three period. He's been there for a year approximately. And the brook that he's been depending upon, it dries up and he stays he doesn't leave until God tells him to move and go elsewhere. This man's a man of faith. He's a man of trusting the Lord. And it's amazing since he's like you and me, that he's able to maintain that faith in God Almighty. But then chapter 17, it gets worse. It goes from the frying pan into the fire. Follow along what happens. Verse 8. The word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get you to Zarephath, which belongs to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering sticks. Can we pause for a second? This is an amazing fact that God sends him to Zarephath. Now, when he says, Arise and go, there's urgency. 
the Hebrew has the idea that you've got you to move now. Well, that makes sense. He needs water. He's got to go. But when he says that and he obeys, it's an amazing step of faith. Considering what we know about Zarephath, or the New Testament, it's the city that's called Sarepta, S-E-R-E-P-T-A, that you read about in the Gospels of Christ. And so when we think about where this is, He's going to move from the inner part of your picture, your map, towards the coast where he's going to head towards Zarephath. That, that city of Zarephath, you've got, you got to think if you were Elijah. God's saying, I'm moving you from whittling place to a crucible. Literally, that's what Zarephath means, crucible. You can imagine what going through Elijah's mind. Are you kidding? It can't get any worse than what it was. So a crucible must mean it's going to be something good. And as he's traveling, he's got to go 7,500 miles out in the open. He's going to be moving for a period of space. And remember, there's a manhunt going on for him. And where he's going, he's, uh, he could be exposed. He could be arrested. He could be hauled before uh, Ahab, before the time has done. But the challenging part is where Zarephath is. Zarephath is in Zidon. That may not mean a whole lot to you until you go back into chapter 16 and remember that in chapter 16 it talked about um, the idea of Zidon when it talked about, verse 31, when it talked about Ahab's marriage. Zidon is a territory that's controlled by a man by the name of Ethbaal. She, he is the dad of Jezebel. So God is sending Elijah to Jezebel's hometown. Okay, that could be a dangerous spot because you know what type of worship is there. It could be a dangerous spot because her dad is there. This is going to be a dangerous territory. This is going to be something. And yet it says that he arose and he went to this spot. And on top of it, God is saying, when you get there, I have it all planned out. A widow is going to take care of you. Now that may not mean much to you and me, but in those days it would mean you don't have much to look forward to because the widows don't have much to get. And what challenges me is this fact that he gets up and goes. Goes exactly where God wants him to go, even though it doesn't sound like the greatest place. But he is operating by faith. He is operating by, by growing faith. This fella knew these certain facts that helped him to grow in faith. Fact number one. God knows what's best for me in any and all trials. God knows what's best for me. That's the way that Elijah is thinking. Elijah is thinking to himself, I, I, you know, Zarephath, there's questions there, but this is what God knows is best for me. Now, how could it possibly be best? How could he possibly count it all joy, literally assess it as something beneficial. How could he look at this trial, this difficulty, this crucible as being possibly beneficial in his life? That's what count it all joy means, to assess, to reckon, to evaluate, to try to put value to. Okay? How could he, what could he think that it might be of benefit? Well, it's outside of Ahab's territory, so that's a benefit. Ahab isn't in charge, so Ahab's troops aren't there. Though it is under his father-in-law's control, it's a coastal town. Water isn't going to be as much of an issue as it is in the inner regions. They're going to have some there. Which, by the way, when he arrives at town, he says to the woman, give me to drink. There's no hesitancy for her to give him drink at this point. So there's, there's some provisions there that are benefit. It's a coastal town, so you're going to have people in and out. A merchant city. So there's going to be travelers so he can blend in as a visitor without being so, you know, stand out. 
because he, in the inner region, there would be less peoples coming through and it would be kind of like the time we were in China. We went to the northern region of China to a city and this city was, in, was right next to North Korea. And when we went into a restaurant, we, we could tell that they don't see many Westerners. Everybody in the restaurant stopped eating and watched us until we were done. Now that's a paranoid feeling. There are people looking at you. Well, he would blend in. There would have been other Westerners where he could have blent in and he could have been safe in that regard. He, you know, thinking of from this point of view, he, they wouldn't expect him to be in Jezebel's hometown. If you're going to search, you wouldn't search in the most obvious places that he wouldn't go. This would be a city you wouldn't go to. So God, in his, in his irony, sends him to a spot. And when he says, you go to this town, the word that is used here when he enters the city, and it talks about, he uses the word that she has a room in her house, and it is the room, that, it's the idea that, that typically shows up in Semitic literature as a boarding room. They didn't have hotels. You would stay at somebody's home. And so the, she had rented out her home, had used her home, so he wouldn't draw attention that way. But he comes into the city, and, and it looks like it's going to be a challenge, but there's some reasons behind that God knows what is best. And he brings him into this town, and he's trusting the Lord that God knows exactly what God is doing. This is a picture of somebody right before the parent is giving driving lessons. <laughs> this is a picture of when the parents are giving driving lessons. It looks a whole lot different, okay? You ever teach your kids how to drive? Okay? It was one of those moments that it improved your prayer life immensely. <laughs> you know those little, those little notches around the steering wheel? Okay? The ones that weren't there before, but by the time you were, you were, you know, they were there, you put the nubbies in. Any of you ever, while you were giving lessons, you were sitting on the passenger side and, and you, you were hitting the floor trying to stop the car? And you get all these hectic moments because, as the parent, you're saying, you know, I want them to learn to drive, but under somebody else's watch. So my wife did the driver training. And so the nervousness... You're not sure if they, as an inexperienced driver, know what to do when they approach that sign that says STOP. You're not sure if they're going to pull out when they shouldn't pull out. And you, you're ready at any moment to do what? To grab that steering wheel. To push them out of the car. Okay. You're ready to take over at any moment. I wonder if God ever feels like we're the parent and he's the student driver of our life. Where we're ready to push him out and take over because he isn't doing it right. You know that idea of trusting him in our trials? That idea that we think we know what's best, and when it isn't, it isn't comfortable and we want to put on the brake, we take it back? Do we ever do that when there's financial problems? Do you ever find yourself in a panic moment when God has you in a trial, and you start questioning, why in the world is the Lord doing this? And you forget to think. My God knows what is best for me. My God is going to be able to see down the road a whole lot better than I can. He knows what he's doing. He knows what is best for me at this moment when it involves a people conflict. When it involves a financial challenge. When it involves a, a healing situation or a sickness. My God knows what he is doing. When all of a sudden there's a threat of the economy, when there's all of a sudden a floods hitting our region, 
Our God is not caught off guard by the weatherman's forecast. Our God knew what was going to happen this week in Lebanon County. Our God is a God who is in control. But sometimes we act like he doesn't know what he's doing. Sometimes we act as if he's being too unfair with us. Sometimes we act as if he isn't showing the favor to us that he should be showing me because I go to church on Sunday and he owes me a whole lot more. Wait a minute, the bottom line is this. Elijah grew in faith because Elijah believed this, that when God was sending him to a questionable spot, he looked at the word, he understood that God was saying, you need to do this. He believed our God knew what was best for him. He believed that God was able to work all things together for good to them that love the Lord. So when God tells us some things in his word that we struggle with and we say we don't understand it, do we believe our God knows what's best for us? When he tells us to give sacrificially, when he tells us to forgive someone who has hurt us deeply, when he tells us that we're to work on the marriage, and we say, but, but it doesn't look like it's going to be it. When we believe our God knows what is best, it makes a difference in our life. It helps us to grow in faith. There is something else that he believed. He believed that God knows best how to provide for me in any of those trials. God says to him, and here's the story. Let's pick up with it in these verses. He arose, goes to Zarephath. He came to the gate of the city. Behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks. And again, we made this comment. He is told, a widow woman's going to take care of you. He called to her and said, fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. As she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Oh, by the way, bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in your hand. And as she said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but only a handful of meal or flour left in the barrel, and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I'm gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it or cook it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. Well, this has got to be an encouraging moment for Elijah. Okay? And Elijah says to her, Stop fearing. Go and do as you have said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after that make for you and for your son. <laughs> right? You're Elijah, subject to like passions. Okay, what would you think at this moment? God brought you to the city, put you in a widow woman's house, and the widow woman says, I don't have any food. Well, that's out of the frying pan right into... The fire, okay? And it's amazing the way God provided for him. It's a very unusual way of provision, okay? It's via a miracle that we're going to read about. It's via a Gentile woman. Remember, he's a Jewish prophet. She's a Gentile woman that she's taking care of him. She's of that lower class, that class that doesn't have a whole lot. She's of that widow class. In fact, she has very little. If so little that it says very clearly she's on her last little bit of bread and flour, and a matter of fact, there's not enough for her to really feed herself and her son. It is so little. She says, I'm getting ready to make it. And after we're done making it, we're going to die. Okay, so she's been malnourished for a period of time. She is in a desperate situation. By the way, remember where he found her? At the gate of the city? Doing what? We don't know. Was she possibly begging? She has exhausted all of her means I mean, mom, seriously, if you were taking care of your son, you're on your own, you're a widow, you're, you're a single parent, you would do everything and exhaust every little option you have. She has. 
She has exhausted everything. There is nothing in the cupboard. And it is barren. And this is the woman that's going to take care of Elijah? If, now, this is me. If I were Elijah, I would have left. Okay? But Elijah has greater faith. Elijah says to the woman, he says, okay, um, God knows what's best. God knows how he's working with this. But by the way, God must have spoken to him before, before he got there. Because look at the next verse. He shares with her already a message that God has given. For thus saith the Lord of Israel, the barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day that the Lord sends rain again back on the earth. She went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days. And it goes on, it says, The barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. This woman, you know, here you have, and I, I probably should deal with this. Elijah, in some of the commentaries I read, is questioned as being a real rude type of guy. That he comes in and he says to the woman, Hey, give me a drink of water. And then when she's walking away, he says, And bring me food on top of it. And some authors project upon him, they're saying, this guy is just an obnoxious character. That's not really true. That's unfair. That is putting American culture upon this Bible story. Okay? We have to remember that, it was, you know, that he is doing what is very culturally acceptable at that time. It may not be what you and I would like, a visitor just walk up to us and say, hey, by the way, yeah, give me some food and water. And we'd look at him and go, what would you do? What would you say if a perfect stranger walked up to you and said, give me some water and food? What would you say? Who are you? That's kind. Okay. I think some of you would be a little bit more blunt. You know, some of you would just basically say, you know, get lost. Yeah, that'd be more like it. It's a different culture. It's a different setting. It, the whole idea of hospitality was really a, a sacred thing. And so as far as, you know, he clearly knows what he's doing. He already knows. He's had the word of the Lord. And so what he's asking her in this whole series is he's testing her. He's finding out if she's going to trust, if she's going to be able to, to you know, uh, work with him, and he's going to be able to help her, and if she's going to show the charity. And so there's already a message given to him, and this is an opportunity. It's very directive, and so there's more to it. It's not an noxious, rude individual, somebody who is wanting to minister to her, but he's asking her if she's available to be ministering, if she's going to trust, and he gives that message to her. And so what happens is God does this provision for him. That's an amazing provision. It's miraculous. Miraculous in that we just read that God is going to do exactly what he promised. The words that he uses are very simple. There are words that are containers that aren't these huge containers, but they're small containers, kind of this size and then even smaller. And God is saying that he's going to provide in such a way that it'll never run dry. How did he do that? Did she take the flour out and it just refilled right away? I don't know. Okay, it's like when Jesus fed the 5,000. Did the fish all of a sudden, did, they, did it just keep on you know, shooting out fish out of the baskets? Or did they just pluck one and one reappeared and it just never ran out? I don't know. You don't know either. But God did a miracle, and we know that this is the reality that God provided for them in a very special way. The facts were that the provisions were provided as needed. Okay, it never ran out. And they were, they were never stopping. And it's an amazing, wise provision. God gave them enough so that they had to continue to trust. And God gave them enough so that it wouldn't cause the neighbors to wonder, hey, she's opening up a marketplace over there. Who is this guy? What is going on? They got miracle bread over there. 
and draw attention to themselves. It was just keep on providing day by day. Very wise. Very wise that God gave them what they needed, when they needed, and took care of them day by day by day. Maybe that's the disadvantage we have in America. Maybe we in America, we don't live day by day. We at the most live week by week. Maybe that's a challenge to our faith. That we don't grow as much because we're never really challenged. And besides, even if we got really desperate, what could we always fall back on anymore? Stores, credit cards. We don't have that that situation where we're as desperate as them. And as a result, they're growing, they're trusting day by day. Now, some commentators said he wonders why God met her need. She's a a woman. (laughs) She's a Gentile woman. She's a lady that comes from the land of Baal. This is, the, this is a Baal-centered Sarepta. This is an evil town. Well, you've got to remember, there's a couple facts here. That this woman does have some faith. She uses Jehovah for the name of the Lord. If you remember back in verse 12 where she makes comment, she says that before the Lord, as the Lord lives, your capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, she's using Jehovah's name. She indicates she knows something about God. She is more familiar than the typical person. And God is caring for her. Though she may not have matured faith, she may not have all the knowledge you have, God was caring for one of his kids. We know as well she believed in the message that Elijah gives. She goes and makes the food and brings it back. Now that's a pretty desperate situation. She's ready to die. She takes the food, literally moms, she takes the food out of her son's mouth and gives it to the prophet, believing his words. Out of faith. This woman has, has a growing faith as well. And so God is, God is dealing with her. She's spiritually a sensitive person. Later on in the story, she has a crisis. Her boy dies. And she says to the prophet, Are you come to remind me of my sins? She is spiritually sensitive about things that have happened in her life. And she calls them sin. And she has this guilt factor that indicates that she has a sensitivity towards offending God Almighty. So here's a woman who, who is, as, is showing a lot of different detail that you and I would say she's a believer. She's a believer that sees herself as a sinner that has offended a holy God. She is one who is believing that God can provide. She is one who is trying to act and believe upon God's word. She's a generous individual. She is loving as God would be loving by helping out others in need. And so she makes the food for the prophet. And here God provides for her. And you've got to remember this. God provides for those who are generous. We read about that. My God shall supply all your need. That is written in context to believers who are already showing generosity towards the Apostle Paul. And so this woman is going to be taken care of because she is one of God's children. And all in all, you have, you have this account that God knows how to provide. There's a true story that comes out of India. That there's a missionaries that were, that were a missionary from India that went to South Africa. And he was sharing with his co-workers who had written the story that he was helping out people who were in desperate situations. So a lot of his own, his own produce, his own food, he had given away, and he and his family had nothing left. Their garden that they had planted, the fruits were there, but they weren't mature yet to be eaten. So they were praying, Lord, we have nothing. We have absolutely nothing. Now, according to this account, the next morning when they went out, their garden had matured overnight. Is it possible for God to mature vegetables overnight? Yes. Can God do that for us? 
in amazing ways. Um, Gene Getz, who is an author of a book of Elijah, talks about when he was in seminary, and he ended up teaching in seminary years later, and some of you have some of the books and commentaries he's written. He talks about when he and his wife were in seminary, that there came to a point that they had an infant, and uh, they ran out of food. They ran out of money. They ran out of food. He wasn't going to get paid for until the end of the week, and here on Monday, they were out of food. They didn't have any of the baby food that they needed for the baby, and they didn't have any money coming in. And his wife decided just to pray about it. So while she's ironing, she's praying, God, please, we need something you need to provide for us. And within the hour, the mailman came there, and the mailman had dropped off several different, different letters. And she opened one, and it was from Sears Roebuck and Company. And inside, there was a letter, and in the letter talked about how they were sending her a refund for a purchase that she had made. And she's thinking, I never made a purchase. But they got my name, they got my address, they have everything right, and they sent several dollars. In fact, it's the exact amount that she knew she would need to the penny to go down to the store and be able to buy the, children, the child food. But she looked at it and she says, I don't deserve this. This isn't right. Because this isn't, I never made a purchase with them. So she called Sears Roebuck. She got the lady in the accounting department and said, it's a mistake. And the woman said, it can't be a mistake. Our company never makes mistakes. <laughs> That's why they closed down in town. because. Um, so, they, so she argued with the woman, and the woman finally said, listen, we can't take the check back. You might as well just cash it, because we can't take it back. It's written, it's mailed to you, it's yours. Just take it and stop arguing. So he said to his wife, at that moment, then she started praising the Lord that God had provided for them, even though she insists to this day they made the mistake. But God had provided for them. Can our God do that kind of thing? Yes, he can. Can he do it? God can provide. Are you trusting him to provide? Do you believe he'll provide? Or how did it go this week when you got your bills? Did you get upset? Did you blame your wife for bills? Did you say, Lord, it's the kids that you gave us. We, we've got to feed them, Lord. This is, they're just too much. How did you act when it comes to trusting the Lord? How, how does it, you act when all of a sudden there's pressures? You know, it never fails, right? When there's challenges financially, then something else goes down wrong, right? Then all of a sudden, now the car breaks down or something else will go wrong. In the middle, how do you respond? How do you, how do you talk? Let's, let's be simple about it. Sometimes we get all upset about the big bills and we forget to thank the Lord for the little provisions he made. The daily provisions. The, the freezer full. The fridge half full. That we forget to, to thank the Lord. How is it when it comes to you saying, I've got needs, but you can't be charitable? You can't help out others? That's a matter of trust. It's a matter of trust that's saying, Lord, you know, what am I to do? How am I supposed to act? What a, Lord, I believe that you can meet my needs. I believe that wherever you direct me, it's the best thing for me. Lord, I believe that you can meet all of my needs as long as I do what I'm supposed to do when it comes to trusting and being charitable and giving and not fretting and not getting upset with others and treating others. That's how Elijah grew his faith. But he also grew it in the third area by this. By thinking and believing, God knows best how to use me in any and all situations. God knows best how to use me. You see, he comes to this woman who has a need. She has physical needs. We've already talked about it. She has the physical needs of she and her son. They're in a, a desperate moment. The needs that they need food. 
And God brings Elijah there. And Elijah, when he comes there, this woman who is in desperate need of food, and Elijah's in desperate need of food, she needs to grow in her faith. It's interesting to think this through, that Elijah's crucible, his own period of testing, is his opportunity to teach others, to minister to this woman. That is so, so true to scriptures that God often uses your trial as an opportunity for you to minister to other people. You don't like the trial. You don't like the health issue. You don't like the financial problems. You don't like the, the neighborhood problems. But God has brought some of that into your life at times for you to minister to other people. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that blessed be the God who comforts us in all of our tribulations that we may be able to comfort them which are in any other type of trouble by the comfort wherewith we were comforted of God. God gives you crucibles so you can use them as a classroom to helping somebody else out. But it won't work if you're struggling against learning yourself. But God brought her, brought him to her because she needed him for a bigger problem. The bigger problem wasn't just the food. The bigger problem goes down in the passage. Verse 17. It came to pass after all this was being done, they were being provided for, things were going great, nobody was searching for him at her house, it was a safe place, that the son of the woman of the mistress of the house, the boy got sick. And his sickness became so bad that there was no breath left in the boy. He died. And she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O thou man of God? Are you come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? He said to her, Give me your son. He took him out of her bosom and carried him up into the loft, that room that he was renting, where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. He cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? He stretched himself, he didn't understand. He stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord and said, O oh Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. This is so unusual. When in the Old Testament has this happened before? Exactly. Exactly, it didn't. What he's asking for is something so un unusual. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down to the chamber into the house and delivered him to the mother and said, See, your son lives. The woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is true. She needed a growth. She needed help. She was going to have a desperate situation that Elijah didn't know about. Elijah wonders about. But God in his wisdom knew this was going to happen sometime in the months ahead. So he brings Elijah at that time into this woman's life so that later on he can minister to this lady and this boy in a very unusual way. It's a devastating blow that the boy got sick. In fact, I, I, I think this. She seems much more upset now with the son dying than Weeks before when she said, I'm making food for my boy and he and I are going to die. They were facing death then. But now she is really upset compared to back then and really angry because she says, you slayed my son. She attacks Elijah, who's been helping her all this time. It's because of him that she's been able to survive that first death encounter. And now she goes after the hand that is feeding her.
literally. And she attacks him. Why is it she is so angry now and she was more compliant with death back then? Why is there such a change? I think there's a couple possibilities. I don't know. But back here was the idea that she and the son were going to go together. Right? There wouldn't be separation. We all talk about this at times. If we're going to go and meet the Lord, we want to go in the rapture because we don't want to leave loved ones behind. Okay, at this moment, she is thinking we're going together. Is there some solace in dying together? Sure there would be. As well, I think this is a truism. For the last few months, she has seen God use her to help the prophet. She has served. She had given her food to the prophet. She is housing, she's housing, um, what do we call it? Somebody who's running. Um, a fugitive, thank you. She's housing a, a, an international fugitive. She is serving God this way. And this is how she gets treated? Can you, can you relate to that? That sometimes people get upset after, I've done this for the Lord, and Lord, you're doing this to me? And she is really angry. She is really upset. She needs help in her faith. She needs help in the sense of growing and trusting and relying that God knows what is best, that God will provide as needed. And Elijah had to learn, hey, wait a minute. I need to minister to people, and then this is his challenge. I need to be used of God in a way that I don't expect in lives that I'm not sure I want to minister to. Have you ever tried to do good for somebody and they turn on you? They accuse you? They attack you? Do you want to keep on ministering? No. Subject to like passions? You want to be kind to somebody who is attacking you? Elijah needs this lesson to learn. He needs to rely upon the Lord and to grow in ministering to people who don't appear to want his ministry. But he needs to do it. And so God puts him in this spot where he is going to all of a sudden be challenged to try to help out this person who's attacking him, who's blaming him. You have slain my son. You, are, you, are, you have done harm to me. How do you respond to somebody who is attacking you for doing what's right? How do you minister to somebody who is saying false things about you? How do you maintain a spirit of compassion towards your critics? Here's what Elijah did. This was a growing experience for him. When attacked, he had to be gracious to those who still have needs. When she attacks him, notice his graciousness. His graciousness in chapter 17, verse 19. She's accusing him. She's attacking him. And what does he say to her? Just these few words. Give me your son. You say, well, where's the graciousness in that? He's offering to help. And he didn't say what he was, could be thinking. He refrained from striking back at those who struck him. Remember, subject to like passions, 
what are you and I tempted to do? When somebody wants to hit us with words, what do we want to do? Hit back. And so he's growing through this time. He's growing when he's afflicted. And I believe Elijah was terribly afflicted by this boy's death. I think he got close to this boy. How do I know that? Because look at the passage. He goes to the Lord and he says, Lord, I don't understand. Lord, I wonder. I wonder about her son being slain. In verse 21, three times persistent prayer, stretching himself upon the child, having that personal contact, that very intimate contact, praying and praying again and praying some more. And having this boy, just this boy must have meant something to him. When afflicted, we pray, we don't panic. That's how we are to respond. That's how, Elijah, you're to learn to, to grow in your faith. That you don't attack back. You don't strike back. You don't strike out. You go to the Lord. You go to the Lord and you pray. And you take it to the Lord and you pray. And then what you do is if you see achievement, if you see some type of resolution, you remain humble. You don't become haughty. He brings the boy back and all he says to the woman, here is your son. He doesn't try to justify himself. He doesn't try to say, see, you were wrong in attacking me. You shouldn't have said what you said, and I, you owe me a big-time apology. He understands where she's coming from. She's in a desperate spot. She's a bereaved woman. She's grieving. And so he just ministers to somebody who doesn't want to be ministered, doesn't, doesn't deserve ministering, and he's showing a real humility. Is that you? Is that how you have responded to relatives who have attacked you in your faith? Is that the way you have responded to co-workers and others who have made fun of your faith? Is this the way you respond to others who may have called your kids into question? Or in your tactics of teaching? Or trying to share the truth? Or trying to live out? Is this how you respond? We need to grow. And to say, God, you know how best to use me. You know how best to use me if I respond, if I'm slapped on the cheek, I'm supposed to turn the other cheek. You know what's best, Lord, how to use me. You know that in my world, in my culture, if I, I've got to stand up for my rights, I'm an American, and I can't let anybody ever walk over me. But Lord, you know how best to use me. You know how at times I need to have that humility. I need to be that gracious. And I need to be calm and led by the Spirit. Not forcing and fixing everything and making sure that others know how right I am. Lord, you, you know how best to use me. To just in this moment minister into this person. You letting God use you that way? Are you showing the patience and the prayerfulness in the middle of your trials and troubles? Are you one that when you attack, you respond the way scriptures would ask you? Are you an individual who would even take time to try to encourage somebody who is struggling in their faith? Are you an individual that you look for opportunities to be able to minister to those who are struggling, who are having difficulties? Or is it all about I've got problems, i got problems, i got problems. Why isn't everybody ministering to my problems? You know, maybe I should put it down this way. Is church all about you getting ministered to or are you ministering to others? It's a world of difference. 
And this whole concept of growing in faith is phenomenal. If we come to the point like Elijah where we say, hey, wait a minute, to grow in faith, I need to come to this bottom line. I need to believe in my heart that his ways are best, that God knows what he's doing, that God can provide, that God can use me if I do what's right, if I am what's right. So what are you going to work on this week? What are you going to walk away with? If you say, wait a minute, I'm going to walk away with thinking this thought, remembering this way, God's ways are best for me then that would mean you're not going to get so upset this week. Then that would mean you're going to look into his word, and you're going to do what he says with strict obedience. And you're going to follow it and say, I believe he, he knows what's best. Maybe you're going to sit back this week and you say, I'm going to believe that God provides what is best for me. So I'm going to become more thankful for what he's provided. I'm going to work at contentment this week. And when some issues arise, I'm going to pray and not panic. That's how this would look in your life. Maybe you would say, God knows best how to use me, so I'm going to look for opportunities to minister. I'm going to pray for others more. I'm going to do what's right, act what's right, and respond to others properly according to the Word of God because God can then use me better. It's a matter of just walking by faith. Or as a young man put it, a young man who was testifying in one of those meetings, Dwight Well Moody meetings in Brockton, Massachusetts years ago. He was, they were having meetings, and at the end of one of the services, one young man stood up. And he made this comment. He says, I'm not quite sure what God has planned for me, but I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust, and I'm going to obey. The song leader that night was a gentleman by the name of Daniel Towner. He wrote down those words, trust and obey. He sent them to his friend, who his name was John Samus, and together then, within a year, they put together a song that you're very familiar with. A song that has lasted through the decades, but a simple, simple message. A message about just trusting and obeying. This is the Christian life. This is the whole life of living for the Lord. Look at the words. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. How true. How true it is that we just need to trust and obey. There's no other way for having that joy, that happiness, that contentment in Christ. They went on to write, there's not a shadow can rise. There's not a cloud in the skies, but his smile will drive it away. There's not a doubt, there's not a fear, there's not a sigh, there's not a tear. They can't abide in our lives while we trust and obey. Even if we're running out of food. Even if all of a sudden there's the desperate nature of a death in the home or an illness. It's all about trusting and obeying. Not a burden we bear, not a sorrow we share. But our toil, (laughs) he quickly drives and richly repays. Not of grief nor a loss, of frown or a cross. But they're blessed if we trust and obey. This is what the Christian life is about. Growing in faith while we just simply trust and obey.